0: Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing. The good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, Ian here, welcome to episode 68 of the Tango Gillette Fox Shop podcast. It's a Saturday morning, I'm sat in the garden office, uh, it's nice and quiet so I thought I'd make the most of um, not having builders around using angle grinders and uh, hammer drills to uh, record a, a podcast which will just deal with lots of little bits and bobs from the news recently Um, my thoughts on what's been going on in policing and um, yeah just first of all I just want to I just want to start by saying thank you so much to all the people who very regularly drop me emails and messages saying how much they're enjoying the podcast uh, or the book or both and it's really really um, heartwarming actually I get lots of lovely messages from serving officers as well as those who've retired. Some of them tell me some quite heartrending stories about uh, maybe their reasons for leaving Um, and others um, give me a real insight into what's going on um, for those who are currently serving. So thanks ever so much, really appreciate it. Um, Just to remind you, you can contact me by email at i a i n at IKIndiaKilo-Insights.com or you can drop me a message via LinkedIn or you can drop me a message via the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site. Um, so yeah, I, I, re- I reply to, to everyone um, because I think that's uh, the right thing to do so yeah thank you for that um, the audiobook which I've been putting out on the podcast free of charge uh, a few people have said to me why are you doing that when you ch- when you you know when you can have to spend 20 pounds to buy the book I suppose the simple answer to that is that um, I didn't write that book to make any money uh, I was not not remotely interested in making money from the book uh, and frankly, I haven't really made that much money from it. You'd, you know, anyone who thinks that they're going to write a book and make loads of money is is just deluding themselves. I wrote that book, and I'm doing this podcast uh, to influence the narrative on policing, which, as we all know, has been unbelievably negative. And I just want to inject some challenge into people's thinking, so that they don't s- sort of lazily stereotype police officers um, as bad people because we all know that the overwhelming majority of people in policing are really good people and they're working really hard and they've been set up to fail um, by successive governments, particularly this government, um, and by many of their own leaders, unfortunately. Um, They've been, uh, yeah, given a really shit job, which shouldn't be like that. It should be the best, I think it's the best job in the world. It has the potential to be the best job in the world and it's they've turned what could be the best job in the world into one of the shittest jobs in the world. Um, Really interesting, a couple of headlines from broadsheets today. Um, So in the Times, Sir Mark Riley has written an article talking about how uh, he's covering a number of areas. I've just got to say, I don't know if he listens to this, but if he does, you're doing a great job. Really, fair play to you. Um, all of the things that you're saying at the moment uh, and prioritising at the moment are just music to music to my ears and music to many of the people uh, who are currently serving, uh, or at least if it's not, it should be. Um, so well done, you. Um, so today uh, in The Times he was talking about something that I have talked about a lot um, and it was certainly one of the things that was in my list of top 10 things to get policing back on track and this is make it easier to get rid of uh, willfully uh, unfit or underperforming officers and I'm not talking about officers who are injured in the line of duty or who are suffering from serious mental health issues, we're talking about people who who are just not committed to the job that they're being paid to do uh, and they are underperforming probably across lots of different areas of policing and we desperately need to get rid of those people, get them out of the organisation quickly because they are a drain they sap the morale of a team they sap the time and energies of supervisors um, and they are they we should not have them in the job and i and i told a story i'll sort of tell it again an abbreviated version of it where when i was the chief inspector in the west midlands uh we had, uh, as every as every as every department has, you have a a number of problem children who are just a nightmare, and one of these individuals uh, was had a terrible sickness record, um, would go sick at the drop of a hat, would stay, you know, was clearly nothing wrong with them, um, and uh, had sort of defied every attempt by supervisors over the years to performance manage him out of the job. And uh, I decided to grasp that nettle and I said to two sergeants who were responsible for him, I said, right, I need. we need to get rid of this bloke out of the organisation because he's a nightmare. Um, he's, we've got abundant evidence to do that, so let's do it. And uh, long story short, but they became so stressed by trying to deal with him that they went sick. They both, both sergeants, not not at the same time, but over a period of time, both sergeants ended up going sick with stress because they were trying to get rid of this bloke. I mean, that says something, doesn't it? Uh, the, the systems to get rid of people are so bureaucratic and HR professionals are generally, in my experience, hopeless. Um, they don't. Um, they, the, you know, they, they don't really help police supervisors to to deal with these people. Um, you know, all they'll do is trot out the process. But the process, it's the process that isn't working. The process needs to be massively streamlined, and. Um, yeah, and we don't want to. We don't want to see a, a, a system put in place where that is used in a malevolent way to settle scores by supervisors or senior managers to get rid of people that they don't like. You know, it needs to be fair, but it also needs to be effective. Uh, so let's let's get these people out of policing because no one, no one wants them in there, do they? Um, On the sickness side of things, this is a really tricky one, isn't it? So if you've got someone who is injured on duty, um, they could be the most courageous, heroic officer and they get, say, stabbed or shot. Um, uh, And that gives them sort of life-changing injuries or serious mental health problems. So I suppose the, the tricky question is, how long can we keep paying someone, regardless of of how they came to be injured, how long can we reasonably keep someone in the organisation who who is not deployable, um, but who has suffered an injury, whether it's physical or mental, through no fault of their own? Uh, That's a really tricky one. And, um, you know, I know that we've got sort of, you know, the ability for people to be medically retired. Um, but I suppose the the point is, um, if if you're a police officer and you can't be you can't be deployed in a operational context, then, sad as it is, uh, that person will probably need to be exited from the organisation at some point. Uh, because let's face it, we can't keep someone in the organisation indefinitely if they are only able to do a small part of what they're being expected to do and that's the sad reality I suppose but yeah there's a lot of detail there but there's no question whatsoever that um, you know we need to get a grip of uh, of a lot of these um, slackers and um, yeah lightweights in the job who, who are just taking the piss out of everyone. Um, the other point that, that he made in, in his article uh, which I thought was absolutely brilliant was that he's going to give a set of debt? Um, I'll quote from the Times here. I'm such a cheap skit. I can't be. I'm too cheap to uh, subscribe to the Times because it's behind a paywall. But on the on the BBC uh, website, they they give you the front pages, don't they? So I'm being a real cheap skit and reading off the free bit of the BBC website. Um, I'll quote from it. it says. He would set a date for the NHS, social care and other public services to deal with cases involving mental health instead of the police. He wants to free officer time to allow them to focus on cutting crime. Oh, my God. This was just, I actually wanted to, um, you know, if he had been in the room, I'd have high-fived them um, for this. Now, I don't know. This is a newspaper, isn't it? So there there might be, that, that, that headline might be very... Uh, you know, there must be a lot more detail behind that or it might actually be very inaccurate. But if that's, if that is the case, then fantastic um, because, you know, again, this is something that uh, we bang on about a lot. It is, it is unbelievable that police officers have gradually, gradually, gradually ended up picking up more and more and more work from other agencies who show no interest whatsoever uh, in uh, doing uh, the the role that, that they are responsible for, and are very quick to pass demand onto policing, uh, particularly the classic four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you know when they uh, shut up shop for the weekend, and then they tell you about a load of grief that that is going to end up with you know worst case scenario was. Uh, that load of grief gets handed on to the police. The police go in and try and deal with it badly. Um, Someone either dies uh, and then the police drop in the ship, don't they? Um, And I think it's just gone on for far, far too long now. Um, I remember before I finished in the West Midlands, uh, the, the job I did sort of the last 12 months, I was working on a project, but before that I was... I was working in a place called mission support which managed the day-to-day running of the force and as a superintendent you'd be in charge of all of the resourcing decisions for the force as well as sort of managing the fallout from critical incidents and all of that kind of stuff um so i suppose you were the buck kind of stopped with you i suppose during that particular tour of duty um we would regularly come on duty and uh, the very first thing that that would be presented to me would be uh, the scores on the doors in terms of the numbers of officers that we we had available for deployment across various different departments. And obviously the the key one really is frontline responders. So regularly we would have probably a third of our um, uniform officers who were, uh, uh, you know, dedicated to proactive uniform patrols, a third of them would just be wiped out instantly on mental health watches, hospital watches, um, crime scene. Now that's another one. So everybody knows about mental health and hospital stuff, sapping resources. But the other thing uh, that is probably less well-known is the amount of time that officers now have to spend guarding crime scenes. So I used to get into very heated discussions sometimes with SIOs uh, from homicide uh, department or other serious crime departments who would keep crime scenes open for way longer than I believe they needed to be kept open for, and because they weren't, because they weren't supplying the resources to guard those crime scenes, they didn't care. It wasn't. they were was just like, well, I don't care who guards it. You know, um, there was a time years ago when we would have kept a crime scene open for maybe forty-eight hours, maybe maximum seventy-two hours, um, and then we would have site texted up. In other words, we would have boarded it up. Um, and 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 whereas now it seems again this is another part of the risk averse risk averse approach that seems to have infected all of policing. Regularly have crime scenes open for two weeks, which requires probably a uniform officer at the front of the premises, a uniform officer at the back, twenty four hours a day. So. You know, I think that kind of stuff. They need to look at that and say, right, you know, that's a, that's a self-inflicted wound. We don't. I don't personally believe an SIO. I've had this argument with many SIOS, and they all say, uh, well, it's my investigation, and and, and I want the scene kept open. I'd say, well, I'm sorry, but um, you know, you, your investigation is not the only thing that's going on uh, in this force at the moment, and. Uh, For every officer that stood unnecessarily on a crime scene for a week. uh, That is a victim of crime somewhere else who isn't getting any service at all. So there you go. So there's another article which was in the Daily Telegraph. And this one made me roll my eyes right up into the top of my head. And this is Rishi Sunak. Talking about my fears for the safety of women. Now this comes on the back of the horrific murder of uh, Zara Alina, who's a thirty-five-year-old uh, trainee lawyer, I believe, who was basically sexually assa- abducted off the street, sexually assaulted, and then stamped to death by Jordan McSweeney, a 29-year-old, who had 28 convictions for 69 separate offences. Absolutely horrific uh, offence. And and sadly, something that has become really... There's been quite a lot of these, haven't there, in the last sort of 12, 18 months. Obviously, um, you know, the Sarah Everard one being particularly close to home for all the wrong reasons for policing um but rishi sunak was talking about how um he feared for the safety of his wife and daughters uh, when they were you know out and about in the streets and how we need to make the streets safer and it's just like it's like are you for real you know this is a tory prime minister for a tory government whether he made those decisions or not that has completely screwed public safety in the UK for the last 12 years, and uh, and where we've just had a, an autumn statement, the budget on Thursday, where there is going to be no new money for policing um, after many, many years of cuts. And you just think to yourself, the, the arrogance of these people knows no bounds, does it? Um, So you think about the autumn statement, I mean, whilst I don't think for a minute the cuts to policing currently are going to be anything like, you know, the brutal cuts that we saw back in 2010, where policing lost somewhere between 25 and 30% of its resources in a very short period of time, which was laid the foundations for all of the issues that we've seen in the last few years around a complete collapse in criminal justice outcomes and um yeah much greater risk for members of the public and a deeply demoralized organization so i just thought it'd be worth um having a little look at you know i'm not saying i'm right on any of this stuff but i'm pretty well connected and networked and i think about this stuff an awful lot so What do I think the autumn statement means for policing? So so there's going to be no new money. And uh, effectively, because of the cost of living and the energy costs um, and inflation, uh, the cost of everything for policing is going to rise. um, And that means effectively real terms cut in budgets. in terms of the staff, obviously, I'm stating the obvious here, but the take-home pay for particularly those uh, relatively young in service is going to be stretched and put under increasing pressure through inflation and energy costs, and that will lead to, uh, I'm sorry to say, low morale, um, potential corruption, we've talked about that before, haven't we? And uh, real difficulties in keeping people in the organisation for any length of time. So that sort of exodus, the voluntary resignations, I think, sadly, I can see that uh, not um, improving anytime soon as people potentially exit the organisation and look for a job a job with better money. And um, I think one of my recent podcast guests was talking about, you know, a, a PC working early, late and nights with all of the risks and, um, you know, restrictions on your social life and all that stuff, uh, you can probably earn as much working in Weatherspoon's as you can working as a police officer now. So that's not a good situation, I would suggest. But I've got to say, um, weirdly, uh, there are some opportunities uh, for policing. I think that it will force chief officers to do things differently. Um, And and part of the reason I think why policing is in such a crisis is because they've carried on behaving and deploying their resources as if we are still in a cash rich organisation. So all of that stuff around doing things that have nothing to do with public safety uh, crime investigation, all of that stuff that that is what the public expect the police to do. That will have to stop and it doesn't just have to stop because it's. we should never have been doing it in the first place but we just haven't got, the police just haven't got the resources. I keep talking about we, don't I? I'm not in the police anymore, I have to remind myself of that sometimes. The police service just hasn't got the resources anymore to be able to afford to do that. So every minute a police officer spends babysitting a mental health patient or sat in an A&E department just in case someone harms themselves or goes missing, I'm sorry, we just can't do that anymore. Um, So I think it will force chief officers to finally um, summon up the courage to tell partners that we're just not doing it anymore, and if that causes them a crisis, if that causes their organisation to break, well, so be it. Because you know what, that's exactly what's happened to the police. So you know, we don't get involved in in, in sort of you know we don't help dentists out, do we? We don't we don't you know when there's a, the bloke d- digging the the road, kind of needs a, another couple of people to dig a bigger hole. We don't sort of roll our sleeves up in the police and and help them do that. So why on earth are we doing all of this other stuff? So I'd say austerity mark two is an opportunity for the police to finally break away from doing a lot of this stuff that has nothing to do with policing and focus on the things that the public want us to do. Um, The other thing I think policing needs to stop doing is they need to wean themselves off this Fixation with bringing in overpaid consultancies who are charging forces millions upon millions of pounds to do things that I think forces could perfectly well do for themselves or um, use a much cheaper resource to do those things. We've seen so many examples, haven't we, over the years of forces Paying extortionate amounts of money to some of these big consultancies and getting the square root of fuck all um, in return, uh, solutions that aren't very good, um, and uh, it really, it really mystifies it mystifies people further down the organisation, you know, PC Sergeant and Inspector Y forces seem to think that paying these big consultancies, all these millions of pounds to screw things up very often is a good idea. It's not a good idea. So I'd say austerity mark two for policing. We need to see um, a much more um, mature approach to Technology to uh, embracing smaller, more agile suppliers who will give you solutions that are fit for purpose at a fraction of the cost of a lot of the technology supplied by some of these bigger players. So, I do think, in amongst the bad news, this should be seen, I think, as an opportunity to do things differently. In every force, particularly the bigger forces, because just by virtue of the fact that they've got more people, you've got some really, really bright people there who have you've been you've been putting them through masters programmes, um, you know, they're highly qualified and, and more than anything else, they understand policing, they've been doing it, they understand it, so why on earth? Do do they think it's a good idea to bring in? I mean, I used to. And don't get me wrong, I I got on very well with some of the consultants that uh, I worked with over the years. As people, they're, they're they're lovely people. They're very bright, but they're completely clueless about policing. And and all they do is uh, take all of the information and knowledge that they're given by people like me, and then package it up uh, in a fancy. 50 slide PowerPoint presentation and play it all back to you again and I just think you know we're not I don't know why uh, this is going on sorry I'm banging on about consultants again aren't I but um yeah we need to do things differently and certainly you know the Aquila the company that I'm one of the co-founders of at the moment you know we've developed some absolutely fantastic technology that will be game changing for police uh digital investigations and um, bringing more offenders to justice and giving sort of organizations and investigators and frontline officers the tools to finally provide a 21st century service to victims of crime so uh you know I, i make no apologies for plugging my own company but there's lots of other suppliers out there who are also doing some some really clever stuff so the police just need to kind of broaden their thinking uh, and procurement teams need to um, listen to the practitioners, the knowledgeable practitioners who understand what is out there in the market, what those emerging technologies might look like, rather than you know doing what they've always done, which is you go to one of these big companies uh, who take about 12 months to scope out the problem, which everyone knows what the problem is, and then they take another 12 months to design a solution, which is crap. And then they charge you tens of millions of pounds for it. You know, we've moved, I think police IT teams, procurement teams, and, uh, you know, forces, chief officers need to stop um, defaulting to these big companies. I know they think it's a comfort blanket because they think, oh, well, you know, we can't go wrong, can we, if we, if we, uh, you know, take on one of these big consultancies, but actually, um, it's never, it's never, it, it rarely ends well. I appreciate I've probably uh, irretrievably and um, permanently uh, screwed up any likelihood of ever working for one of the large consultancies again. But you know what? Um, I think I can probably live with that. Um, yeah, just one thing—it's worth just touching on before we conclude this episode. Um, I, I was kindly invited to speak on a um, conference this week. Uh, I was invited on by David Howells, who was one of the previous podcast guests, and he's doing a lot of work around uh, organisational culture and leadership in policing, and he's next an police officer and um, Yeah, doing some really, really interesting work, David. Um, And I was invited to speak on a conference all about workplace bullying, and I was a bit sort of perplexed why I'd been asked to speak at that. But then it turned out that it was all around uh, bullying. This particular session was around bullying in the police. Um, So I thought, well, you know, I've probably got something to say about police culture and... um, and there was three of us, there was myself, there was David, and there was Jonathan Wilson. And Jonathan was an ex-Metropolitan Police Superintendent who ended up having a very unpleasant and torrid time of it, being badly bullied by uh, some of the very senior people in the Met and ended up having something of i I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, having something of a nervous breakdown, I think, and ended up leaving. Uh, the Met, I think, with twenty-eight and a half years, he told really quite a heartrending story, and there's something there that probably a message that I would say: if you sat there as a PC or a sergeant or an inspector, uh, thinking that the only people who get bullied in policing are uh, junior officers or those who are of you know lower ranks, then think again, because um, I know an awful lot of people from inspector rank and upwards who were very badly bullied uh treated appallingly um by the organization um and uh anyway because i had to give this um because i had to give this sort of input i sort of thought oh shit, i better actually <laughs> i better actually do do some preparation for this typical me kind of like doing everything kind of last minute so like the day before, or a couple of days before, I thought, right, I better, better give this some thought, really. What am I going to say? And, um, and I thought I'd come at it from a slightly different perspective, really, because very often when you talk about bullying in the police, people, the media, maybe default to uh, some of these bad news stories recently about uh, racism, homophobia, misogyny, or you know, there's some of the bad behaviour at lower ranks. And I decided I would come at this whole point from a the whole thing from a completely different kind of perspective, I suppose. Um, And uh, and I decided that actually, what most people I know in policing agree on is the extent to which rank, particularly senior ranks have stifled any sort of dissenting voice in policing for a very long time. And uh, and that is a form, I think, of bullying, really, because um, I can think of so many occasions that people of senior rank just did not want to engage with anyone uh, who challenged them. and. Um, you know, when you consider that in the police workforce, approximately 97% of the workforce are PC, Sergeant, and Inspector. So it's those people who feel the biggest sort of operational day-to-day impact of badly thought through policies and and policing priorities. So you look again at those issues around, you know, senior, senior officers basically failing to challenge other agencies. Net result of that is that PCs and Sergeants, mainly PCs, end up having to do all the all the crap that falls out of those that out of that failure i suppose so um you know so i talked about a little bit about that and about how historically police promotion processes have tended to favor those who who never challenge upwards and that then perpetuates sort of a culture of of acquiescence and and then those in the 19 97% grow very frustrated at feeling unheard, they feel like pawns in a game where other people set the rules and and where challenging upwards virtually guarantees uh, a negative response at best and at worst full on bullying. Um, And that then causes a slow and gradual decline in morale and a sort of a them and us mindset amongst those who do the job versus those who are in charge. Um, and, you know, this failure to listen uh, and bully those who disagree with them is now being seen across UK policing, isn't it? You know, where where we're now seeing all of the things we talk about a lot in this podcast and people are saying in more widely now, you know, and it's really interesting, isn't it? That so many of the things, I'm not saying I take sole responsibility for this because I think it's a gradual, it's been a gradual realisation waking up that so many of the things I've been saying for the last two or three years are now being said by people like Mark Riley, which is great. But and, you know, the, the impact the impact of a culture where senior leaders don't listen is this. You know, we've seen this terrible service in terms of crime investigation, uh, police leaders caving into government interference and sort of adopting quite a sort of obsequiousness towards. Their political masters um and i was listening to um another podcast that some of you may also listen to the thin blue mind um you can find out this uh, it's really really interesting t- topics they, they talk about and they were talking about the the future of policing or their, the advice that they would be giving to uh, the new prime minister around policing and, and they they were saying so i've forgotten their names There's three three chaps are all ex-police officers and they sort of have a discussion about various subjects Thin Blue Mind, it's very good actually to have a listen to it don't listen to mine first obviously But, um, and they are saying about the silence that's come from chief officers for so many years now, you know that if, if only NPCC had spoken as one uh, and pushed back politically a lot of the things that are happening now um, wouldn't be happening I think they would have it would have been a very powerful voice, way more powerful than the Police Federation but they didn't do that did they um, I, I hope that that is going to change but I suppose my fear is that uh, a lot of the people who have come up into those positions who are now sat at those chief officer ranks have come through that system where there is a uh, culture of saying yes to everything and failing t- to challenge and stifling debate um and uh, David who invited me on to to the uh united this it was called united against workplace bullying conference i'll give uh, i'll give david's uh, company um a shout out, it's Able and Rush, David works for a company called Able and Rush and they're doing quite a lot of stuff with policing at the moment to sort of try and help them understand how they can build a more inclusive and um, mature culture where people actually get listened to so David shared with me this idea of, um, it's called the iceberg of ignorance and you might want to google it um, and it was created uh, that the sort of idea, the theory was uh, a chap called Sidney Yoshida, Y-O-S-H-I-D-A. Sidney Yoshida. And he talked about the iceberg of ignorance where um, only 4% of problems uh, in an organisation are known to top managers. So that's the bit of the iceberg that sticks out of the water. Um Uh, About 9% of problems are known to middle management. Um, About 74% of problems in any organisation are known to first-line supervisors. But 100% of the problems in an organisation are known to frontline employees. And and I thought that resonated so well for me around policing because... um, There is this culture, there certainly has been for far too long of of chief officers or people sort of of the rank of superintendent and above thinking that they've got all the answers and they don't and they need to start listening to the people on the front line who actually have to live the reality of the decisions that that the people above them make. So have a look at that. Sydney Yoshida, the iceberg of ignorance. Right, I'm going to call it a day there. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice now, um, and I'm sure you are too. Right, speak soon. Bye. (laughs) Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. or do we feel that we're the safest street in town?